Heavenly Father, tonight as we hear your voice, help us not to harden our hearts. We ask please that your spirit will transform us and change us through your powerful word that's living and active. In particular, Father, please create in us hearts that love you and so are quick and genuine in our repentance from sin. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this is Geordie Cernick, the man with no fear. Now, he first realised that when he jumped out of a plane and felt absolutely nothing, just absolutely nothing. Earlier, he'd suffered from a rare disease where his body produced too much stress hormone, so he felt constantly under threat, sweating constantly, couldn't lose weight. So they took out his adrenal glands, which I want to say up up here, but I think they're actually down here. Okay. Okay. I'm not a doctor. But they are, and it cured him. And the only problem was it caused other problems for him. And one was that he literally cannot feel fear. Now, that might not sound like a problem. It has some upsides, doesn't it? Like uh, he walked down the side of the tallest or one of the tallest buildings in the UK, and a team of scientists monitored his body. No response at all to the stress of that, just, just exactly the same as walking down the street. And so he can, he can do anything, right? But actually it means he, he really struggles. Listen to what he says. Watching my kids running around a street, normally I'd be scared thinking that they're going to fall over and hurt themselves. And now I don't have that, which is a big shame because it's every parent's right to feel scared for their kids. And it's not just fear, I don't get excited. I don't get motivated to do stuff. So I really have to push myself because I haven't got that drive anymore. You see, it's a problem to have too much fear of the wrong things, but it's also a problem to have too little fear of the right things. What is it that you fear most? In fact, share with the person next to you the deepest fear that you've got that you've never told anyone. No, I'm just joking. You don't have to do that. But what would it be? Let me encourage you not to share it right now. (laughs) But seriously, what would it be? What do you fear? And what does that tell you about yourself? You see, the thing that you are most afraid to lose is probably what's most important to you. Or the thing that you fear not losing but not getting. What is it that your fears say about you and, and what matters most to you? In some ways, Paul wrote this letter to Corinthians out of fear. Now, not just fear, but have a look at chapter 12, verse 20. He says, For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. The great Apostle Paul. You know, we saw a few weeks ago, chapter 11, he was shipwrecked how many times? Five, three times? You know, once would be enough for me, I wouldn't get on another boat. He was whipped five times, beaten with rods. He was stoned uh, with the actual rock kind for the gospel. That's Paul, right? And he says, I am afraid. What do you fear, Paul? And what is it that that can teach us about what we should care about? That's what we're going to see in God's Word tonight. Tonight we come to the last chapter of the letter, chapter 13, And is this just me, or does it feel like, you know, when you're up to the last episode of a long-running show? 
I don't know if, you, if you've got this fear, maybe it is just me. This isn't just one of those mini-series with just a couple of episodes and then it's done. This is one of those dramas that's been running for season after season. In fact, our church has been working through the letters that Paul wrote the Corinthians since, does anyone know? Since 2018. One Corinthians, then two Corinthians. Now, not the whole time, but one term every year, we've been working through chapter by chapter. So if you've been around our church for about five years, you've grown up with this book. There's actually something helpful about that because Paul's own relationship with this church has a long history as well. You can see that in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, this will be my third visit to you. It's been a long journey. There's been ups and downs. There are heroes and villains. And just like in a long-running TV show, we've come to love the people involved. And tonight is the last episode, the last chapter. How will it end? Will it tie up all the loose ends? Well, as we press play, as Krista read it just before, what did you think? Did it tie up all the loose ends? I actually think it raised a bunch of questions, especially if you're someone who hasn't watched all the past seasons. But, but either way, in fact, I want to ask you, have a look at that chapter. What questions might this chapter raise for someone? I'm going to get you to yell them out, so don't be shy. Has anyone got one? The easy ones will come first. Turn to the person next to you. Share with them a question that someone might have. And then I'll get that person to share your thoughts. Look at chapter 13. What questions might this chapter raise? Is there actually a Christian? Yeah, it does. It does raise that question, hey? What, what makes you ask that question? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, verse 5, I think, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. It makes you wonder, what will they find? In fact, I think it makes you wonder, what would the next episode have been? I watched a show with my wife just this week, and the light, it was very unsatisfying because it ends, and the, the guy that did it is still out there. Like they, they haven't put him in jail yet. It's like, will that happen? Now, it's not quite as serious. Well, we'll see. What other questions? Isn't that a, a question that you want to ask? Examine yourselves, verse 5, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. You expect him to say how to do it. But he doesn't. Don't you realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Well, what's the test? Yeah, good one. What else? Have you not been defending yourself? <laughs> yes. Yes, that was a funny verse. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves? You? Yes. We won't get to that one tonight. Other questions? Let me give you some. What is it that he'll do when he visits? Look at verse 2. I gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, and now repeat it while absence. On my return, sounds very ominous, I will not spare those who sinned earlier. What will that look like? And what's, why is he taking it so seriously anyway? And connected with that, what, what's going on with the quote that he uses in verse 1? Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a quote we heard from Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, a law in the Old Testament about court cases and punishments. Again, it sounds serious, but why is he quoting it? Uh, what does he mean in verses 3 and 4? There's just some stuff in there. What's he mean? Um, what about verse 11? Why does he suddenly seem to change tone all of a sudden? How can he go from saying these serious things to then say, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Should we kiss each other? Did you have that one in verse 12? 
I mean, you, you laugh, but it actually does say it five times in the Bible, greet one another with a holy kiss. But actually, yes, it raises the question of how should we apply this chapter? We're not an apostle like Paul was. We're not the church in Corinth. We're 15,000 kilometres and 2,000 years away. And so guess what, guys? We're going to answer all of those questions tonight in great detail. I hope you've had a coffee. I hope you've gone to the toilet. No, we're not going to get to them all, but this is actually what we want to do as we read the Bible. We, this is a church where you are encouraged to ask your questions, to seek to understand, and not just to pick out the verses that you think you understand, but rather to seek to understand it all, to have it all change us. And to do that, you need to realise that these aren't just isolated verses that you can pick out like a fortune cookie. This is a real letter. It was brought about by a real situation, and so we need to understand that situation. And so have a look at verse 1. Paul says he's coming to visit for the third time. That's the situation that hangs over this entire chapter. He's very concerned about how this will go. When I was in uni, I lived in an El Cheapo house share. There was mould in my bedroom. I didn't know how to get rid of it, so I just put up with it. And Every now and then, our family would go on holidays, like I'm talking a proper adult family with a proper adult house without mould. And so house-sitting was like a little holiday from my mould, and so the idea of house-sitting is that you, you look after the place, isn't it? Except there's an unwritten rule, I don't know if you know this rule, but what is the unwritten rule of house-sitting? It's this, there's only one day, one day only, that you would ever dream of doing any cleaning or tidying. It's the day before they come back, isn't it? That's the case. Now, sometimes, warning, they come back early. They walk in and they think, I've been robbed. I've never seen a place like this before. And so instead of it being, you know, lovely, you know, thank you for letting us stay, Mr. and Mrs. Proper Adults, what actually happens is you realise they're never going to look at me the same way again. Maybe I should change churches so I don't have to keep bumping into them. And you think to yourself, do they not have a mobile phone? This could have all been avoided if you just sent me a text message, I would have cleaned up. Probably would have only taken 10 minutes. Well, Paul is giving them a heads up. He's coming because he's afraid that he will actually find a mess. Here's the first thing that Paul fears. Look at chapter 12, verse 20. He fears that when he comes, he will find them sinning without repentance. He says, for I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be and that you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many, listen to this, who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. Paul fears that the members of this church will be continuing to sin without repenting. And there's the first insight, isn't it, to what matters to Paul. Their spiritual health. Fear is not a weapon he's using to attack them. Fear is something that he carries in his love for them, individually and as a church. And you notice he's not concerned about how they feel they're going spiritually. You can feel you're doing great spiritually when really you're just in a good mood. You can think you're doing terribly. But actually, you might just be discouraged. Paul's focus here is not how they feel about it, but whether they've actually been living it. 
And he's afraid that they haven't been, that, that he'll come and he'll find that they haven't repented of these sins. Now, why does that matter? It's because of what a Christian is. Now, I hope you know what a Christian gets, right? God, in his grace, in his kindness, he gives us forgiveness, eternal life, a relationship with him that lasts, lasts forever, with him as our Father, the Holy Spirit to live inside us, to change us, and I could keep going. It's a good list. That's what a Christian gets. But to know if you have them, you need to know what a Christian is. We saw it there, chapter 13, verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so what's the test, Paul? We, we ask that question. And frustratingly, Paul seems to assume that, he, or, that they already know how to test themselves. Now, don't forget, this is not his first writing to them. He's already written them several letters and he's visited them and preached. And so that's why he assumes that they know. And so we're actually going to have to look at previous episodes of the series, some flashbacks to get the, the test. But before we do that, just notice two clues here. First of all, notice verse 5, it is about faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now, almost always when Paul talks about faith, he means trust. You know, like um, when you trust the lifeguard who pulls you out onto the jet ski, that's trust. But here, it's to see whether you are in the faith which tells you Paul is actually talking about the teachings of Christianity. Being a Christian is is more than just having right ideas, and we'll get to that, but it is actually believing the things that God says in his word. The Bible says that um, some of those things are less important than others. We saw that a few weeks ago. Um, you know, it says in Romans chapter 14, for example, that it matters very little whether you think some days of the week are more special than others. That's not a core truth. But the Bible makes it clear that some things are core truths. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul told these people that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he says that is of first importance. Another one is in verse 14 of this passage. It's the Trinity. That's a big deal because it's about God himself, who he really is. Look at that. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that God made you and you are a sinner against him in desperate need of rescue and Jesus' death on the cross pays for your punishment and that is the only hope that you have. Those are some of the core truths of the faith. Do you believe that? Are you in the faith? God's truth is what it is, verse 8. We cannot do anything against the truth, Paul says, but only for the truth. It's not pick and mix. It's not a buffet. I love pick and mix uh, at Coles. Is anyone else? Yeah. Uh, I just love it because you, you don't have to buy the whole bag of assorted loads. You go straight for the ones you like. But that's not what Christianity's like. It's more like a set menu. There's such a thing as the faith. I'm not actually um, rich enough to go to restaurants that have set menus, but I understand that they look pretty good. Um, there is such a thing as the faith, and it doesn't move or shift with culture. Even if you don't like it, there are parts that I don't like. I wish that it didn't say things like, love your enemies. But it does. It is what it is. Now, that's one of the reasons there are creeds. Um, You might not know what a creed is. For thousands of years, 
Christians have said these are some of the core truths that the Bible tells us make up the faith. In fact, we'll say a creed together a bit later tonight when we take communion. And so a Christian is someone who holds to the faith. But it's more than that. See, a Christian is someone who not only agrees with those ideas, but also, look at verse 5, has Jesus Christ in them. That sounds weird, but it's wonderful. Look at verse 5. Don't you realise that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. To be a Christian is to have a living, active, powerful relationship with Jesus where he and you are spiritually joined. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comes to fill your heart. And he lives in you by, your, by his spirit. That's what a Christian is. And so it's someone who holds to the faith and has Jesus Christ in them. But it raises the question, doesn't it? How does that actually happen? And this is where we need to get the flashbacks to past episodes from previous seasons. So let me cut to one that's actually from um, the book of Acts. It's Paul speaking, but I, I struggle sometimes when it's confusing. And so I like to go to the, the, the clearest one, the easiest one to get hold of. And this is an example of the sort of thing Paul would have preached to them. Here he's preaching in Ephesus, uh, but it was about the same time as this letter was written. It's very simple. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Paul says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must, this is how you become a Christian, turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, repentance means doing a U-turn. Have you ever been on the freeway and seen one of those big signs saying, wrong way, go back? I hope not, because if you have, that means you're on the wrong side of the freeway. You're like, you hear on the radio, there's someone driving down the freeway the wrong way. You're like, it's not just one, it's hundreds of them. There it is. You see that sign, wrong way, go back. That is what it means to repent. You stop going the way that you were going, which was your way, the wrong way, following your desires, sinning. And you turn to walk God's way, following his desires, which means not sinning. Now, that's not what saves you. That's just facing reality. That's just who he is. He's God. He's Lord. Not you. Faith in Jesus. That's what saves you. He is the saviour. So your repentance will never be good enough. That's why God sent a saviour. And so the only way to be saved is to trust Jesus to save you. That is how you become a Christian. Faith. And from that moment, Christ is in you. Now we could read through 1 and 2 Corinthians and we'd see this again and again, but I won't do it. I've just chucked a few up on the slide. And you see both of these things. On that side, you see faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says that through the foolishness of what was preached, God saves those who believe. Faith. On the other side, Lord, repent. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And therefore, chapter 7, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, it is repentance that leads to salvation. You see, to become a Christian, you repent And you trust Jesus. Can I say, if you haven't done that tonight, none of us will stop you. 
You can even do it right now in your heart. You could start a party in heaven right now. The Bible says God loves it when any of his children come back to him. Paul says it earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But with all of that in mind, do you see why Paul would be afraid for them if they're sinning without repentance? What does it say about them? It would suggest that they are not really Christians. Because a Christian is someone who has turned from sin to God in repentance. No wonder he fears for them. There would be no reason to think that they have Jesus in them. That they have a saviour at all. Because a Christian is someone who repents. On judgment day. They will still be there holding their own sins. Waiting for punishment. Now we need to be careful as we apply this to ourselves. Because when you become a Christian, you repent. But that doesn't mean that you never sin again, does it? James chapter 3 verse 2 says that we all stumble in many ways. We all still have sinful natures. And so repentance is a daily thing as well. As we notice sins in our lives, there's this day-to-day battle to continue to turn from sin. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. That's actually how you grow as a Christian. But how do those things fit together? How do you know if you have repented when you still have this ongoing day-to-day battle? Now, why I'm asking this is because there's a danger that as as you're hearing what I'm saying here, you might imagine that you fall in and out of being a Christian depending on how well you are repenting. You know, I assume that I will probably die sinning. I hope not, but odds are, just based on the sin that pervades everything about who we are, does that mean I won't be saved? No, no, no. Once you are a Christian, Jesus Christ is in you. And he doesn't like pop in and out, depending on how you're going with your repentance. And so let me tell you how it works, and then I'll give you an illustration. The Christian is the person who has repented in a decisive way. They have just given their life to Jesus. There's the decisive way. But then the evidence of that is that when they fall into sin, they repent of it again and again if needed. Maybe not always straight away, but they do. Let me give you an illustration. Um, The keys to your house or, or your car. To become a Christian, to repent, is to give the keys to the house to Jesus and say, I was just house sitting anyway. It is yours, your house. You made me, it belongs to you. And as you grow as a Christian... It's like Jesus walks through the house and he comes to a door and he says, what about this room? Will you obey me even with this room, this area of your life? Now you might have an internal battle. I don't want to give him that room. I love that room. What if I don't like what he does with it? But then you think to yourself, no, no, no. I do trust him. I do. And so you say to Jesus, okay, even that room. And that happens again and again over time. 
That is the proof that you actually have given the keys to Jesus, not just to hold, but to have. The proof that you've given him the keys, the proof that you've really repented, is not that it's easy for you to let him rearrange it. The proof is, whether it's hard or easy, you do let him even into that room. Do you see how it works? The ongoing life of repentance, that is actually the evidence that you have genuinely repented in that bigger global sense. Whereas the longer that a person continues to sin without repenting, the less confidence that Paul has that they're even a Christian at all. Now, sometimes it's the case that even genuine repentance can need to happen over and over again for the same sin. Anyone who's battled against the sins of the heart knows that. Pride, lust, bitterness. And so sometimes genuine repentance looks like constant repentance. But over time, it will show itself in, first of all, action to change and growth, a changed life, because, Paul, uh, because Jesus is in us. And he's powerful, chapter 3, verse Three, he's not weak in dealing with you, he's powerful among you, could be translated powerful in you. And so I wonder if you saw that in chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, did did you notice that Paul assumes that he'll be able to tell if they've repented, even from some kind of like sins on the inside? See, look at verse 20 of chapter 12. Selfish ambition... How will he know if they've repented of that? Or arrogance? He can't see into their hearts, can he? Well, notice that all of the sins in verse 20 come out in social interactions. Discord, he mentions there, which means disagreements, jealousy and gossip. Their selfishness and arrogance pop up in the way that they treat each other. And sadly, if you've been watching the Corinthian TV show, it's featured these social problems in their church since the very earliest episodes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about groups who have divided and are now fighting. And so Paul probably has something like that in mind. He fears that when he comes, he'll find them still at war. Maybe there'll still be some pockets of a few troublemakers who won't repent. And so he's warning them, letter after letter, repent and instead to walk in love and humility. Remember, it's to this church that he wrote that famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. And so even the sins of the heart, they show themselves on the surface. And and I want to say with great sadness that I can think of people who have been in churches, even this church, for decades, who agree, it seems, with the faith but who've never shown any signs of growth in their love, in their kindness. And I I take it from that it's like this, that there's a reason to have great fear for their soul, for their eternal future, for a person like that, because true repentance shows itself over time in a changed life. And that's why Paul is so afraid for them. It's not just that there's sin in their life, it's that there's been a long history of him pointing that out to them, calling them to repent, and no change. 
chapter 13, verse 2. I already gave you a warning when I was with you a second time. I now repeat it while absent. This is what's setting off the smoke alarm for him. Not so much the sin itself, but that time and time again they fail to change. And I think that helps us to apply this wisely to ourselves because there are different kinds of people here. Some people here have really soft consciences, which is a precious thing. You you really love God. And the thought of of losing Him, it just freaks you out. Whereas others here, you think, oh, well, that's a good sermon. I'm sure lots of people need to hear it. Not for me. I'm fine. And you might have even tuned out. And that might actually be the sign that you are the one in most danger. And so as a preacher, you wonder, how do I bring... A warning clear and loud enough to get through to that person without taking away the joy, the comfort, the assurance that the sincere but worried and introspective Christian ought to be able to have. I don't know what to do, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do both. I'm going to bring, first of all, a comfort and then a warning. So here's the comfort. Remember that you are not saved by perfect repentance, but by Jesus. The sign of True repentance is not perfection, it's progress. And so if you are very aware of sin in your life, if every time you do it again, it cuts you to the core, not just because you're annoyed at yourself for failing, that's pride, but you're grieved that you've offended your God. Let me encourage you that your struggle against sin is evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life, not His absence. Be encouraged as you struggle against sin. That, that, that means that there's signs of life there. And so remember his promises. He forgives. He forgives. He forgives. He forgives. He forgives. He saves. He saves. There's the comfort. But now the warning. Be very afraid of unrepentant sin. in yourself and in one another, in our church family. That really is worth fearing. Even more than sin, actually. Sin sucks. Sin is destructive. The Bible says it grieves God, it damages your spiritual health, it hurts others. But God promises to forgive every sin, no matter how big. No, what is really scary is to be the person who won't let go of sin. Not being willing to repent, that's what will kill you. And so a repentant heart is worth more than all the money in the world. How do you respond to sin in your life? When your conscience is pricked as you read, as you listen, are you quick to repent? John, I talked last week about messy love and, and the brother or sister that might come to you and have a, a hard word, not a harsh word, a hard word about sin in your life. How would you respond? How do you respond? Pray, even now, pray, God, help me in that moment to be quick and genuine in my repentance. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like uh, if, if it is what the Bible says, that you agree with God that what you did was wrong and you say sorry and you ask for God's help to change and then you take whatever action is needed to to make it right and to change. There's nothing more scary 
in the life of a person who calls himself a Christian than an unwillingness to repent from sin. I've been praying today and I'm praying even now that God will be using this word to melt our hearts towards him. God, help me. In fact, especially me to be quick and genuine in my repentance. This really gets to the heart of Paul's fears for the Corinthians because his long history with them has raised a doubt in his mind about whether that will happen, at least for some of them. And so there's point number one. He fears that when he comes, he'll find them sinning without repentance. But that leads to the second thing that he fears. Point number two. Next slide, thanks. He, He fears having to take action if he finds them unrepentant. That's what he's talking about in verse 2. What's he he saying there? I already gave you a warning when I was with you a second time. I now repeat it while absence. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. What's he saying he'll do? Well, he doesn't say in this passage, so we'll do some flicking again. I want you to turn your Bibles. Matthew chapter 18. See what Jesus says on this. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking about what to do with a brother or a sister who sins. And Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, now there's some debate there actually about whether it's if they sin against you or if you see them sinning in general. But Jesus lays out the process. What you do, you bring it up with them, just between the two of you, verse 15. But if they won't listen... Then verse 16, you, you get one or two other Christians who, who agree this is a sin, this ought to change and helps them take it more seriously. And so Jesus quotes that same verse from Deuteronomy that Paul does about the testimony of two or three witnesses. But if they won't listen even to the two or three Christians, then you're to tell it to the church, verse 17. Now, again, there's some debate there whether the church means the church leaders or, or all the church um, But at this point, if the church tells them to repent and they still won't listen, then look what Jesus says they're to do. Verse 17. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, stop treating them like a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean you don't love them. Jesus says to love your neighbour, whether Christian or not. So you love them. But you don't pretend that they're still a Christian brother or sister because they're not living like a Christian. And so, come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because Paul's warned them, he's talked to them about this, this is not actually the second warning, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what we see is Paul applying that teaching from Jesus into the church in Corinth because 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1, there's sexual immorality in the church. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And look what Paul says they should have done, verse 2. He says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out from your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Now, he's not giving them every step there of the process. But if the man won't repent, Paul summarizes how far they, they might have gone They should put him out of their fellowship. They should treat him like he's not a Christian. 
Now, again, let me make sure you get this. It doesn't mean stop showing love to them. But all the things that mark this person as a member of the church family, as a brother and sister in Christ, well, there's no evidence that that's the case. To, to, to allow him to carry on doing that would be to lie to him. There's, there's actually strong evidence that he's not a Christian because he won't repent of this sin. Now, a word that's sometimes used for that is excommunication. Ex, like ex-girlfriend, no longer, out from. And um, the communication part is related to the word community, fellowship. Um, we, we use the word communion, what you have in common, what you share. And so to um, remove them from fellowship is to ex, take them out of, excommunicate, take them out of the community. Um, or another word that people use for it is church discipline. Now, it's really important to notice that the motive is love for this. The goal is actually that the person will be brought back, that they will have repented. Look at verse 5. He says, Hand this man over to Satan, for the, we'll come back to that, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Hand him over to Satan is a metaphorical way of saying what we've just been talking about. You, know, you, you put him out, he's not part of the Christian fellowship anymore. He's not in our community, he's in the community of the world, in, in Satan's sphere. But the goal there, you see, is for his ultimate good. For, for the destruction of his flesh is a, is a way to talk about repentance. You can look it up, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, have put the flesh to death with its passions and desires. You know, the flesh in Paul's mind is often used to talk about our evil desires, our sinful nature. And so the goal is that the person will wake up to the seriousness of their situation and repent. So that, verse 5, his spirit may be saved. Do you see that the motive there is love, the goal is for the person's good, and actually the motive is also for the good of the rest of the church. Look at verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? like termites in a house or mould in my bedroom, sin, it, it, it tends to spread, it tends to infest everything around it. And so people who claim to be Christians but who are continuing to live in unrepentant sin will damage the spiritual health of the other Christians in their church. And Paul cares about the health of the church because God cares about the health of the church. We've, we see that in, in 1 Corinthians, the, the first letter, that it's the temple of God, not the building, the people. And so the church is to glorify God and to please Him. And it's to be a place where people who don't know Jesus can come and hear about Him and become His followers. But unrepentant sin, that dishonors God. And it creates a barrier, doesn't it, for those who would otherwise hear about Jesus. It creates a barrier for them. And therefore, the sake, for the sake of this person and for the church and for the world and for God's glory, this action is to be taken. And so that's probably what Paul has in mind when, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, he says, when he comes, he won't spare them if, they, if he finds them unrepentant. He will confront them, and those who haven't repented, he will put them out of the church community so that the church treats them like an unbeliever not allowing them to do the things that mark them as a full member of the church family. Now, I'm aware as I say all this that there are some who have been very, very hurt by churches or religious groups who have done things uh, 
that, that might have some parallels to that. Sometimes it's been done badly. Sometimes it's been done wrongly. Sometimes it might have been done rightly, but it's, it's still very painful. Um, let me just say that there are cults out there that do this in a much more severe way that's far different than what Paul is talking about here. And so it's really important to notice how different Paul is to that. In fact, how gentle he's been with them. In fact, how reluctant he's been to do this. That's why Paul fears that he'll have to take this action. He would much rather not have to do it. Look at verse 10. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, so that when I come, I won't have to do it. I won't have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. You see, he does have the authority from Jesus over this church to do it, because he's an apostle. He is one of that small group of people that Jesus appointed to start and lead these churches. And that's why it says... um, that this is the authority that the Lord gave him. But notice that Paul is very aware of the purpose of his authority. It's for building them up. There's a wrong view of authority, that if, you, if you're an authority, that means you can just do whatever you want over the thing you have authority over. No, that's not right. All authority comes with a purpose, in fact, a responsibility. And if that, responsibility, if that authority is used to pursue any other purpose, then it becomes an abuse of authority. And so Paul has the purpose of his authority crystal clear in his mind. It's to build them up as a church. Now that might include removing people who are damaging it, but that's actually not his, his, his heart. That's not what he wants to do. And so he's so reluctant to use this authority. That's the second thing to notice about this authority. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons, in fact, that he's writing this letter so that he won't even have to use it. I wonder, as you've read 2 Corinthians, have you noticed the extraordinary lengths Paul has gone to to avoid having to do this, right? Before he even um, wrote them this letter, he wrote them a previous letter. Then he visited them a second time and he warned them. And then he had a a third visit planned, but we learn in chapter 2, verse 1 of of 2 Corinthians, that he decided not to come, and in fact he upset them by not coming. They thought he um, he couldn't be trusted, because he didn't want to have to discipline them. And so instead he sent them another letter that we we don't have, but um, it's referred to in chapter 2, verse 3, and he sent that with Titus. And in chapter 7, verse 6, it says that Titus came back with a good report. Lots of them had repented, and yet... Paul seems to fear that some still haven't. And so, again, instead of coming to discipline them, he sends them yet another letter trying to persuade them. Guys, change. Do you see that Paul takes no joy in in being harsh with authority? He would so much more prefer not to use it at all. And I point that out because there are some people who love the idea of authority. They love having it. They love using it. Beware of those people. They often end up abusing it. The, the, the church leader who, who loves the authority that they've got, be very afraid. You, if you've got that in you, be very afraid. Brother and sister, take to heart, that's not what Jesus was like, was it? That's not what Paul was like. That's not what God wants. Pursue a humble heart that longs to show mercy, that's full of grace and kindness. In fact, that's what Paul's hoping for them. He, he actually is he's wishing them Well, the Corinthians assumed that if he was a real apostle, 
He would show it. He would assert his authority. And so he says, verse 3, well, yep, if it comes to that, I will. Verse 3, I won't spare those who keep sinning since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. If you really want that kind of proof, if that's really what you want, you'll get it. But gee, I would so much prefer not to have to, even if it means he looks weak, looks like a failure. Verse 7, we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we've stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though what's going on? Even though we may seem to have failed. Why would that make him look like he's failed? Because remember, they want proof he's a real apostle. Proof in their eyes would be doing something strong and authoritative and kicking someone out of the church. Paul, prove you're an apostle. And he says, look, you know what? I'd much rather you just obey Jesus. Even if that makes me look weak, even if it makes me look like a wussy apostle, like a failure, because that's what Jesus was like, verses 3 and 4. I just want you to walk with Jesus. I just want you to be a healthy church. That's what Paul cares about. And so how do we apply this? Well, I think we compare it to what we care about. You know, in Star Wars, I don't actually know that much about Star Wars. I have seen them, but it was like 40 years ago. And um, Anakin Skywalker... Uh, He has this conversation with Yoda. And what does Yoda say to him? Fear. Come on. Fear is? Yep, fear leads to anger. He says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And a bunch of psychologists watching it today say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, don't teach him to deny his emotions. But you see, Anakin fears losing his mother, losing his wife, and those fears drive him, and they do drive him to the dark side. But you know what's interesting? Luke Skywalker, who's Anakin's son, I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for you, but you've had 40 years. Luke says to Yoda, different conversation, I'm not afraid. And Yoda says, you will be. And he takes him to the the cave on Dagobah, is that right? And Luke sees what he would be like if he turned to the dark side. He sees himself as Darth Vader. And that becomes his greatest fear. That becomes a fear even greater than the fear of loss. For Anakin, fear was the path to the dark side. But for Luke, it was the even greater fear of going to the dark side that set him free and kept him from the dark side. Enabled him even to risk loss, to do what's right. You see, there's great power in fearing the things that really actually do matter the most. It'll set you free from the smaller fears. You may fear a life of poverty, but you have a greater fear of unrepentant sin. And so you repent of the corruption, the theft. You may fear a life of loneliness, but you have a greater fear of sinning and unrepentantly sinning against your Lord, and so you don't go there. You don't go with that person. And so as we finish tonight, let me encourage you to do what Paul says to do in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's not something to do every day, but on occasion, look at yourself. Is there any evidence that I have faith? That I'm in the faith. That Jesus Christ is in me. That I've repented. That his power is changing my life. 
I'm going to give you a chance to do that. The band will come up. But as they come up, let me just point out that Paul actually expects that they will pass the test. Perhaps some won't, but he expects that they will, and so he finishes with what he really hopes for them. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. As you examine yourself, you know the old saying, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. He's a good saviour. And so as we sing this song, normally you finish the sermon, you'd pray. We'll pray later. I want you to pray. Sing this song, use this as a prayer. And as you sing, examine your heart. Consider where you stand with him. If you need to, repent, trust.